0: And you knew when we met that you just had a sense that I had been neglected and abused as a child.
1: Yes, I did. Almost immediately. Maybe the second date. And Third that, date when I met you, when I walked in your parents' home. I knew it again. Yeah, I knew.
0: I remember, that, I remember that night when you came to my parents' house and my brother and my dad were sitting in the corner. They were just looking in
1: the magazine in the living room.
0: And I introduced you. Yeah. And do you remember... What their reaction was? Huh. They didn't They did even say anything.
1: No, just looked up, just looked up nonchalant. Huh. No problem. I was old enough, it didn't bother me. But it made me understand who you were to them.
0: Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. And today's guest is the proud owner of two Texas records. The first, in the 8th grade, for 175 licks at Ferguson Junior High. The second one was... 1977 deadlift record in the state of Texas at that time for his weight class he deadlifted 715 pounds last and not least my husband of 34 years here's Jeff so how comfortable are you in um, doing this?
1: Well, it's fine as long as you don't mind me making jokes every now and then because I'm just that way. That's how my mind works. A little I know. pressure, I make I, a joke.
0: I couldn't keep him off the off the keyboard. He's like pushing these buttons. Really?
1: In the eighth grade. An amazing feat that has never been accomplished again. <laughs> I would love the button.
0: Didn't <laughs> come prepared with any questions for you.
1: <laughs> well, I'm supposed to be your guest.
0: I know, and I'm supposed to be a host. 175 licks for the, for those of you that don't know what licks are. In Texas, there is corporal punishment, or there was when we were in school, and mm-hmm. the principal would come in, or one of the coaches from one of the sports team with a paddle with holes drilled in it. Jeff here. His mission was to beat the school record. (laughs) And he did it.
1: It was painful.
0: But you laughed the whole way through, didn't you? Oh, a couple
1: times I cried, but I did set the record.
0: You're you're, a little rebellious, a little competitive.
1: Yes, I was.
0: You don't want to bowl with him. You don't want to play spades with him. You, You don't want to shoot pool with him.
1: Oh gee, now you're gonna hurt my feelings.
0: Wait, <laughs> that's like the tooth fairy music. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you some questions here. Okay. Well, let's start out like, how did you get into into weightlifting, hmm. bodybuilding? You were you were a power lifter, and then you went into bodybuilding.
1: No, nah, I was always a power lifter, but I wanted to be a bodybuilder. But how I got into it was. As a young person, I was so tall and skinny that uh, I uh, wasn't good at many sports. Uh, coaches wouldn't play me because I was too tall, too thin. And, of course, I took after my mother and father's habits. I drank a lot and smoked a lot. And At the age of 21 years old, I wanted to quit smoking, and I did. Here, can, yeah.
0: you, can you hold this like that in here? Yeah. You're, there.
1: No. Yeah. And a couple of guys I worked with at General Motors were lifting weights. And uh, one of them was a uh, ex-Golden-Gov boxing champion in the 1960s in Arlington, Texas. And I started lifting weights just to get active again, and had to be the most arduous, painful thing I ever did in my life to try to learn to lift weights. I it was so hard, it's so painful to work out. It gets sore every day. But within nine months, I gained 35 pounds of body weight. And within five years, I gained a hundred pounds of body weight and only added three inches to my waist. And so, I thought that was for me, and I enjoyed lifting weights. And I wanted to be a uh, a world record holder or bodybuilder or something, which didn't come to fruition. But
0: but I you're tried. not but you're not competitive at all.
1: No, not really. No, <laughs> oh, I loved it, but that's how I got started. It was kind of a fluke. And it turned around, to be truthful, uh, probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Straightened me out, gave me some sense of direction, gave me a discipline that I never had before. It gave me a focus to see a mission, work for it, accomplish it, get a goofy little small trophy, and be so proud that go back to the gym and start working out again.
0: So you guys haven't seen the pictures of him when he was working out. He was huge. He only had one pair of pants that would fit him, that would go around his size. He had a King Neptune hairdo, this <laughs> gnarly red beard.
1: <laughs> that was only for a while, but I did have one.
0: So how long did you end up, when did you stop lifting competitively?
1: Uh, 19, the end of 1977 was the last time I competed.
0: But it remained a, a constant in your
1: in your life. Oh, yeah, I did. Yeah. I quit working out at one time for six years. I just became obsessed with lifting weights. It was all about me, my diet, my food, my protein, my time. And I realized that it was being destructive. And so I just quit working out altogether. I lost 52 pounds of body weight. And I've always gone to the gym from time to time and worked out. And if I had the opportunity right now, I try to be a world record holder weightlifter right now. I mean, I loved it so much, it just drove me crazy. But anyway.
0: Well, it's done you good. I mean, at 87 years old, you look better than any 87-year-old I know. thought I was 88.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or I'm old.
0: 1940...
1: What? <laughs> you can't add back that far.
0: He also holds another record that's a record in my life. In April, we will have been married 34 years. There was a break in there, but then it came back. Everyone knows that this channel is about mental health, my struggle with my abandonment, my childhood, the problems that I faced, and I want to get Jeff's take on that. So, did you have any idea what you were in for in the grocery store when you saw me?
1: Well, the only only thing I can say is no, but hell no. (laughs) Let me say it again. Hell no. (laughs) As a matter of fact, hell no. (laughs)
0: Well, just to be fair, I didn't have any, any clue what I was in for either.
1: No, no, you had your hands full.
0: We both came from pretty, um, I guess, in a way, typical child childhoods from that time. Mm-hmm. Kids were more to be seen and not heard. Uh, I was seen as weak to love and hug and kiss your kids, play with your kids. It was more rule driven and not emotion driven. Which is different than we raised our kids.
1: Who's the famous doctor that's that started that
0: stuff? The one that ruined mm-hmm. Doctor Spock.
1: Doctor Spock, yeah. yeah, that was his famous rule that you need to leave children alone and don't hug them teaches them to grow up faster. Terrible choice.
0: Yeah, my dad was really affected by that. I have told you about him being left in a playpen. I know this is awkward, but I need to get I need to get stands. He was left in a playpen when my grandmother would go to work all by himself and the downstairs neighbor would come in every four hours to feed him and change him and he had no interaction. So my dad had really no idea how to be a father and my mother, her mother divorced my grandfather when my mother was pretty young and my mom was kind of in the place of having to raise her sisters. So my mother didn't really know how to be a mom. She had no manual. Your parents had no manual. Your dad was pretty badly abused, and your mother was pretty, she was emotionally. I think
1: so. I think my dad loved her, but her dad loved her, but I'm not sure if her mother cared a whole lot for her. Yeah. Yeah. And my father was the youngest of 11 children. And sharecroppers in North Texas. So he grew up a very rough But he managed okay. He graduated with a degree at Oklahoma University Was in the military. My mother went to college, and so. But no, they had problems. My dad was most definitely dysfunctional from the word go.
0: Well, every time you move around that, it makes noises on the recording.
1: Well, it's not my fault. You don't have a stand.
0: Well, I'm going to order stands after this. Oh, here we go. But... (laughs) Yeah. But your your dad, ooh, I think I swallowed a fly. <laughs> your dad had a massive heart attack. He was an alcoholic, an insomniac. He had a lot of physical problems. He was very abusive, and he was 46 or 47 when he died.
1: Uh, 47, he might have been early 48.
0: 47, nine, early. he was born in what, 1922? He, bu- he was born two? in 22
1: and he died at 70. One.
0: So what's yeah. your math say?
1: Uh, 49.
0: I thought he was younger than that. Yeah. That's pretty well, young. And- you know, would been,
1: he'd been 48 because his birthday was in June, so he died at 48 years old.
0: I think the something that's very telling about both your mom and your dad and the way you were raised is your mother never remarried? Mm-mm. Did that affect, that didn't affect you at all. You were already out of the house by that time.
1: Oh, yeah. No, we're all gone, except my little brother, Buddy. Yeah, no, she didn't remarry. No, she didn't want the hassle. She hated being married to him, and he wasn't nice to her. And she tried to be in, in a, involved in one relationship after my father died. And that was such a pukey situation. It was her boss at work in Oklahoma. That, that was it. She never dated again and never saw anybody again for fifty years. She didn't want anything to do with it.
0: No, she didn't. She didn't, and I can understand why. She was, she was pretty severely abused, and I'm just finding out a lot of these things now. I I lost it in two thousand and eight. What were the signs that you first saw in me that you knew I was starting to fray?
1: is this going to be a live show <laughs> or can I go put on a full helmet real quick <laughs> or better yet a body armor. Yeah.
0: J- just be nice.
1: I was. <laughs> I was just trying to make light of a bad situation. I,
0: I I was in a bad situation. So what were, what were the signs that you first saw in me that you were thinking she's starting to spiral? She's starting to have some problems
1: just your change in attitude and staying in bed all the time and you were medicated which really troubled me a lot and i knew from the very beginning that you were wrongly diagnosed i just knew you were a troubled girl and we had too many kids and we were trying to be obedient to the lord and it just was not a good fit for you and you started getting deeper and deeper and course that caused us separations and anxiety and we pulled away from each other and one thing leads to another and before you know it the string just breaks.
0: Yeah. I it wasn't until the last few years that I really figured out what was going on, although at the time I I didn't know what it was. I would leave the house, I would sit at Starbucks for hours. And I would watch people and think, what are your secrets? What's going on? I think I remember one of the first real times, it was after my parents died, that I knew I was in some sort of serious trouble. And we were in Las Vegas, and I started to scratch my arms. I had never done that before in my life. I had no idea why I was doing that but I would scratch my arms. Do you remember that?
1: I remember one time in Vegas. was pretty bad, yeah, but I don't remember that.
0: And then it went from that to other things, but I didn't know what was wrong. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what was wrong. And then there was the night that I ended up at the hospital. The next day, I was told I could get out if I went to see a therapist. Well, I had taken all the kids to therapist, and I didn't. I didn't know of a therapist for myself. How did me going, ending up in the hospital affect you?
1: So now you're going to start asking personal questions. (laughs) It affected me deeply. I didn't know what to do. You were out of control. When I called the ambulance and they came and got you, I had no idea they were going to do that to you. And when I came and saw you, you looked like a caged animal. And I just was overwhelmed.
0: I was too. I can remember waking up. In realizing where I was. <clears throat> I didn't realize at the time that there was no way to get out. I had to be checked out by person after person after person after person. And you, you came up there in that afternoon and sat with me for quite some time.
1: Well, oh, I'm the one that talked to the doctor and I convinced the doctor that you come home. And I put my life on the line for the doctor. So you could come home.
0: Really? Yeah. I didn't what'd you do? I don't remember that story.
1: I just had a long talk with them told them that's what they were seeing was incorrect and you're not this way and you're not that way and you guys have it all wrong and it'll be okay and and there's no abuse and there's no physical abuse I've, I've never touched you physically and
0: Well they just, knew they knew that.
1: It's just a mental issue but I was talking to the head doctor and they took me at my word that it'll be okay.
0: That was probably one of the most scary times of my life and you're right that's one of the deals I had to make to get out was to make like I said an appointment with a therapist and I saw her for a while she was a social worker and I ended up being misdiagnosed which was for me I thought I had an answer so I was excited and the medications though that they put me on what, what sort of changes did you see in me after they had me on the wrong medications?
1: I mean, I don't really have the right words. I just know it changed who you were, and I was extremely upset. because I knew for a fact that you shouldn't be taking those medications. I'm not a doctor. I just had a gut feeling that what they were giving you and what you were doing was going to hurt you, and it did. It caused you all kinds of mental trouble physical troubles, emotional troubles, I guess it's still ongoing. I mean, I don't, I don't have a clue. I just know that it changed you.
0: It did. They put me, I was misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder when, in fact, I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder that began in childhood, and it just kept coming from bad choices that I didn't realize why I was making them. And that's a completely different episode But I just wanted to get your perspective on what you thought through. um, Because when we first got married, it wasn't like that.
1: No. No matter of fact, uh, I guess for all the people that like sports, quite frankly, I thought I hit a Grand Slam Homer. I thought I hit a Grand Slam Homer when I met you. (laughs) Is that more clear? (laughs)
0: Birds.
1: (laughs) No, it wasn't like that when I first met you.
0: No, we did go through some tough times, and moving from Texas to the Northwest was difficult. But I think the root of my dysfunction didn't really come out or come full force until my parents died.
1: I think so. Between your parents and a grandson and a few more things with our children, there was just a,
0: a lot of trauma.
1: A lot of trauma, a lot of snowball effect, and you just didn't seem to be able to uh, come up with a rational way to deal with it that would help you, and it ended up just being a catalyst for... Disassociation. You. Yeah, you just turned I, it off.
0: I checked out. I couldn't. I couldn't deal with it. I checked out. It was, for me, it was like being numb, being encapsulated. Is that how you saw it, or did you just see me withdraw? What were the things that you saw?
1: Probably some of those, I guess. I don't think I know how to say it really how I feel, or I can't put into words like you do, but you um, you pulled away. You um, you shunned me a lot because I know that you felt like it was my fault with uh, some of the children, and I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not perfect. So we just uh, we added a lot in our life. To try to do the right thing and it just uh, came out to be more destructive than it was positive not all cases were but some were but I just saw you pull away you got very distant you got very uncaring unloving and you just um, you were searching for other things to make you smile
0: I think I was searching for distractions and I think I, I remember when I was writing that blog and I wrote a post one time that said something about, I felt like a prisoner in the carefully crafted life that we had built. I felt like I was smothering, like I couldn't breathe. That's a good way to put it. Did you see that? Oh, yeah.
1: I guess when you get dis- disassociated and you pull yourself back, I assume that's kind of how you would feel. You're trapped. You're in a prison with no way to get out.
0: And at that time, before I understood what was going on, I had no way of understanding what was happening with me. So I was just as confused as you were because I couldn't figure it out. I had always been the one... I think, to solve the problems with the kids in the family, to to fight the giants, to pull out all the stops, to do what I needed to do, and I couldn't do it anymore.
1: And that's how you felt, yeah.
0: I, I just I just couldn't do it. I remember one of the medications, one of the things that I loved most, I loved to write. And one of the medications that they had put me on Completely took my creativity. And really, that was in 2008. I don't think that creative part of me has turned back on fully since it was taken.
1: I don't think so. I think the medication burned a part of your mind and your brain that may not come back. Although I have prayed for it to come back.
0: It it would be nice. I mean, I, I... I was on an antipsychotic for a while, and being misdiagnosed and put on the wrong medication makes everything like a 100 times worse. can only assume. Being left with permanent side effects for which I have to continually take medication now, how do you feel about that?
1: Oh, oh. I try not to feel about it. It, it's devastating to me it makes me angry it uh, feels like because other people were trusted to do things for you that they they took part of you away and hurt part of you and no matter how i tried to uh, help that i couldn't i couldn't help whether you didn't want my help or whether you thought i was not able to help i just hated the fact that they were medicating you and i watched you get worse and worse and I would often try to encourage you, and that didn't go very far. To try to tell you, you want me to watch what you're doing. These are you know, And it didn't go well, so I just learned to just be quiet. You took what you took.
0: Yeah, I think with my independent streak along with, I knew something was wrong and I was searching for an answer. You know, even when I met my psychiatrist and my therapist now, it took them a while to take that bipolar label off of me and say you're not dealing with that you're dealing with this and you should not be on these medications i fought them because i was so desperate to feel normal again but i didn't feel normal when i was taking them i was numb i was a zombie i started drinking which i've never done mm. because You know the background of my family, the drinking and the smoking and the cancer and the alcoholism. I knew from a young age that's not anything I wanted. So I never did any of that. So I didn't numb that way. But I did numb with benzos, shopping. I was very impulsive. And you were very, at that time, you were very um, patient with me. I think you knew I was struggling for something. I didn't know what I was struggling for so how did it how how did your view change when we w- realized i wasn't struggling with bipolar disorder but rather with uh, complex post-traumatic stress syndrome from childhood
1: i guess just being a, a layman construction guy i really didn't see any difference between when you were diagnosed with one or the other
0: well i mean did you your feelings how did you feel about that i mean did
1: oh i guess i guess i was kind of smug about it yeah i said to myself i told you you weren't bipolar because you weren't bipolar no. you've been bipolar i'd have known it when we first married and i'd have watched you you didn't get bipolar until somebody said so and they started putting you on medications the drugs made you bipolar You weren't bipolar. Or
0: or acting. I guess there are a lot of overlapping symptoms between bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder, borderline personality disorder, and CPTSD. And you knew when we met that you just had a sense that I had been neglected and abused as a child.
1: Yes, I did. Almost immediately. Maybe the second date. Third date when I met you, when I walked in your parents' home, I knew it again. Yeah, I knew.
0: I remember that I remember that night when you came to my parents house and my brother and my dad were sitting in the corner they were just
1: looking in the magazine in the living room
0: and I introduced you yeah and do you remember what their reaction was huh. they didn't they didn't even say anything
1: no just looked, up, just looked up nonchalant.
0: huh no problem
1: I was old enough it didn't bother me but it made me understand who you were to them
0: yeah you know I struggled for quite some time, with feeling guilty that I didn't miss my mother as much as I did my father. My mother and I had had a horrible relationship up until we moved to the Northwest, and then we had a pretty good relationship. And I really didn't have a relationship with my dad until my mother died.
1: Mm-hmm. Makes perfect sense.
0: I really need to get a microphone stands for these. You saw things back then with me being more like, I guess, the scapegoat child, the black sheep of the family child, and the way my parents felt about me, or at least treated me that I didn't realize, or maybe I didn't want to realize until literally the last few months. My therapist would say, well, what about your childhood? I wouldn't go there with him. How did you feel when I told you, finally, I had talked to him and about my mother?
1: How did I feel?
0: Yeah, did it, were you like, finally, maybe she'll get some help, maybe she'll be able to see?
1: Just grateful you are able to open up. I mean, the difference between you and I was, I was mistreated like you, and things weren't right, but I was just able to let it go, and you weren't able to let it go. Mm-hmm. Just two different people. Not the same circumstance, but a lot of the same effects. And I was able to just go, that was them and it's not me. And I just moved on and you were not able to move on. You were tormented by it.
0: I talked to one of my aunts a few days ago, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and I told her, you know, she was very candid with me and was crying about the fact of, how she felt when she saw me so mistreated and that she couldn't help. That was really validating for me that someone else saw what was going on and I wasn't just making it up. Did did you happen to see a difference? I remember when my mother died and when my dad died. Did you notice a difference in my actions or how I was with the two deaths that were so, so close together?
1: Not really. I mean, the sadness was with both. I knew you were closer to your dad than you were with your mother, which is a given.
0: But being close to my dad really didn't come until after my mother died.
1: Yeah, but I mean the desire was there. And the desire with your dad was there. And your dad just didn't see it until he lost his wife. When he lost his wife, you were the female that he wanted to be close to because he needed the female comfort. And you were there so i think that your dad's death was a way different than your mother because your mother mm-hmm. your mother didn't have that situation with you but if you remember your mother was close to you mm-hmm. for probably 14 years before she died when did she die
0: mom was killed in 2006 and we moved up here in 1990 so for almost 16 years 14
1: almost 14 15 years she got the letter from you and in the 1990, the end of 1990 or the early 91, and after six weeks of no contact, from that moment on, it changed. Mm-hmm. She really became one of your best friends.
0: She did. We spoke two, three, four times yep. a day. But even then, there were things like I didn't know what their first date was. I didn't know details about my parents. I didn't know her health problems. I didn't know... It was a very surface level mm-hmm. relationship. Did, mm-hmm. Were you able to see that? Mm-hmm. It was more about the children,
1: but she enjoyed you. She realized that there was something in you that she missed before. I saw that in your mom. Your mom saw that you were uh, something that uh, she wasn't aware you were. A mom caring with the kids, us going to church, you know, the, the home groups. were involved in the Bible studies. Um Your mother saw that. Your mother saw a difference in you that she didn't think was there before. I saw that. I don't know if you saw that or not. I think it it impacted her to realize that that her daughter uh, was not who she thought she was, that you were a much better and different person than she assumed.
0: Well, I remember going through that adult children of alcoholics class. Do you remember when that happened? Oh, yeah.
1: It was a good one for you.
0: There were probably four other other women in there. Coming out of that class, or in the middle of the class, I had all of this anger towards my parents that I didn't know I had. And I was just seething. But at the end of that class, I came away knowing that mom and dad did the best they could with what they knew. Mm. And I thought I had gotten over it. I didn't realize there were still boxes to unpack. And then I think... uh, How do you see this? I mean, I broke after my dad died. Yeah, there were a lot of different um, traumas that happened before my parents died. You know, our grandson was born three months early. A grandson died. Um, Another grandson was terribly, terribly hurt. I had the motorcycle wreck. I mean, there was trauma after trauma after trauma. Where was I going? (laughs) That's that's kind of a side effect of the medication.
1: You were going somewhere. I wasn't in the car with you. <laughs> I'm on the same road, but I wasn't in a car. I think it was a car behind you.
0: I guess maybe what I was saying is I know after mom died, I remember feeling very robotic and only wanted to take care of my dad. And then after dad died, I felt like a string whose I mean a kite whose string had been cut. I had no Basis, no foundation. And kind of in my mind, I thought with my parents, I had fought so long for their approval and they were never, they were no longer there that it was safe for me to start feeling the things that I had felt all along or they started to come out and I became a different person. You did. And I didn't know why.
1: Just a troubled life.
0: You know, I'm learning, I learn things every day. About the effects of early childhood trauma on on people and how they carry it through their lives. And my gosh, I'm 60 years old almost, and I'm still learning things about why I am the way I am.
1: I guess that's a difference between maybe me and you, or maybe other people. You're still learning things about yourself. I gave, I gave up trying to find out what was wrong. Me.
0: <laughs> well, I I had to find out because. <laughs> There were so many things in my personality that I think I skipped over something with my aunt. I said I was always seeking approval, always seeking validation that I was worth something because I never felt I was worth anything. And then when my parents died, it was weird. It was like part of me, I knew I would never get the acceptance I wanted from them. I knew I wasn't good enough. You know, I can remember when I was just a kid thinking I will never be able to take care of myself, and now I know where that comes from. That's what I was told the whole time I was growing up.
1: Pretty sad.
0: And I I I want to be more than the product that was created unknowingly. Are you seeing I mean, I've I've been I'm in therapy like every week. Are you seeing any Changes? Oh, uh, yeah.
1: I think you've become more confident. You don't look for, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, you don't look for approval as much as you used to. You've Accepted who you are more than you used to before. That makes sense? hmm But I see you, you just, if you don't get approval, you don't need it. And that most definitely makes you a different person, because that's how we're all supposed to be. We're not supposed to live our life trying to get approval. We need to be satisfied with who we are, and what we're doing, and how we are, and grow with that, and not always worried about what the neighbors think.
0: Right. I really, at this point in my life, outside of my my, you know, my two kids here, and you, there are really. Only two other people that I really, it's like a a need, a drive to get approval from. And if, but I can honestly say if I don't get approval from them, it's not going to change my life. Because I know now, and they're the ones that were there for me, the only ones that I knew I was safe with. And if I don't get it, I've gone so long without it, I know now I don't need it. And I think that's one thing I learned when we were divorced is I know I needed to go through that to realize I could be okay on my on my own mm-hmm. so what is your what is your take on all of that what do you on which part I guess watching the evolution and the downfall and the rebuilding it's not been easy no
1: no and I don't know if where you're headed or how you're headed. I just know that. I pray for you to have hope every day, and I pray for you to find the answer and see what it is you need, and I just trust one day God's going to give it to you that you can see exactly what it is. I just know that life has been more brutal to you than some that I know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You've taken the brutality more personal, or should I say you the effects of it are seen in you more than others. Maybe others are just as tormented. They just don't show it in the same way you've shown it. But I see you're trying hard, and I see you, you have a goal. You're trying to do something with your future, and, and uh, you just have to pursue it and, and be content with what you have. But I see you're changing.
0: That's good. <laughs> I know I can't change in every way. I mean, I, I, I realize deficits that I'm left with, and that's okay. I realize things that have left my life, and that's okay. I realize if I don't have the answer, that's okay. And I think, have you noticed, especially since we've been married again, the walls that I've put up because of all of the problems, all of the hurt, all of the pain within me, I know that's made a big impact on us. Oh, yeah.
1: The walls are the walls are tall and they're very thick. And at times I don't think they're in... Impenetrable. I just
0: penetrable.
1: Did not say that. Penetrable.
0: Impenetrable would be you can't get through it.
1: That's what I said. I said penetrable. Okay. Testing. Testing. <laughs> testing.
0: No, I. I think you're right. I think the walls that I've built around myself, unknowingly and some knowingly, were for my own survival, and it's going to have to be. I know people now, I, I would trust people at a drop of a hat before, but now I don't trust anyone. And if some of the past was to come up and say, hey, let's have a relationship again, I would be... I don't think that's very wise. That has to go very slowly.
1: That's probably a smart move. A lot of your relationships hurt you.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And a lot of your walls you put up, put them up yourself.
0: Oh, I did. I had to.
1: You're tired of being hurt, including me. hmm Yep. So what you've gone through has been very hurtful for you. It's been hurtful for me, too, but I try not to say anything about it. It's fine. It'll be okay. I'm just like you. If it's not going to be okay, it's not going to be okay. If it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. I can't jump up and down and yell and scream it, that doesn't solve anything, so I've just always felt real bad that you have had issues and you've been hurt and you've had mental issues you couldn't figure out and things that haunted you and things that scared you, and I've just always hated that you searched for them in places where you got hurt again.
0: Yeah, and I think in all of those places that I searched for approval, especially with the last one, that last friendship, I think I was, in a way, it was almost like my mom is the way I took it, filling the cracks that my mother didn't fill. This other person was, but then there was that evil side. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was devastating for all of us. But in the end, it made me realize why I allowed things, why I sought things out, why I continued with things even though in my gut i was i was feeling something's not right life's a journey <laughs> What's that life is a journey it's a hard one but it's one it's like a puzzle and i want to figure it out i want to figure out not what's wrong with me but how i can be the best me that i can be
1: yep. we're all supposed to be that way but you wouldn't be who you are if you didn't go through the problem no. Well, you can't take one problem out of your life, good, bad, or indifferent. If you took one out, you wouldn't be who you are today. No. So no matter how bad they are, you're still alive. Mm-hmm. You still believe in God. And you still have hope. And a lot of people don't even have that. Right. So if that's where you are, then everything you've gone through is a journey, and it really can be considered a blessing.
0: That That's that's what I feel and there are people that I see around me, some in my family, some that are acquaintances that are still in that numbed phase. And they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts, they're they're running from something when the answer is within them. They just don't want to look. And I think that's something about me that I've always had is kind of this tenacity. It's not going to get me. And I didn't have that for a while. During all that time, I... I was struggling to breathe. Every day was a struggle to get up. I don't feel that now. I feel, you don't like me. Okay. That's fine. It doesn't, it's, your opinion of me doesn't really define who I am. I know who I am. That's
1: exactly what you're supposed to be. Without going through hardships, you don't get that. So that's why I think hardships are, at times, beneficial. And they do cause a lot of trouble. They cause a lot of pain.
0: They do. They do. And I started looking at them. I think I told you I started looking at them more as, yeah, there's a big storm. And I'm not seeing this silver lining because if I just look at the silver lining, I'm not learning what caused the storm, what my part in the storm was, why I allowed the storm to happen.
1: At least you put that in the correct way which stands for every human being alive, it's you that's in the storm. It's you that's the problem. If all of us realize that each one of us is the problem, and if we worked on ourselves to not be a problem, then everybody around us gets benefit from that because we are all a problem. Mm
0: -hmm. I think I feel, feel more free than I ever have in that I have the confidence to say, hey, I'm going to take a five-day road trip and video and vlog and put this together. Hey, I'm going to try and start making a living. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm going to take action. Whereas before, I really felt like I couldn't take action. I, I wasn't worth making money. I wasn't worth putting the effort effort forth.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry you felt that way cuz I always thought you were worth it.
0: Well, I'm not talking about just you. I'm I'm talking about that inner child part. Oh, I know. Where I mean when your mother tells you she's going to put you in the alley where the trash cans are for the garbage man to take you away and I remember you know crying and crying and crying and and she says they won't bring you back. They don't speak English. That real, I think I was probably three or four years old, and that went on a lot. And you know, when you're that age, you're forming your your whole identity. Mm-hmm. It's the foundation. Like with you, pouring concrete, building the framing on a house. If you don't get that foundation right, that house is not going to be right. No,
1: hundred percent. That's the point.
0: Yep. No,
1: you were a broken foundation.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for for. Talking to me, being here—the very first guest on this new podcast.
1: Testing, testing. Did you hear that?
0: That reminds me of my dad. My dad always used to <laughs> testing one, two, three. Testing <laughs> one, two, three. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Because, and I'm, it, I'm glad to hear that you see differences. You can see the strides that I'm making. Do I make them all all the time? No, but I'm trying. You are. You are.
1: I just hope it gets better and that you feel better about yourself and you accomplish whatever it is you feel like you need to accomplish. Well, thank you. You're welcome.
0: It's nice to have someone believe in you. And um, I think everyone needs somebody to believe in them.
1: Yes, they do. But always remember, if nobody believes in you, there is always one that does.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, with that, I am hungry. It stops snowing. Are you hungry? Sure. So that's going to be it for this episode of Digging Through Dominoes. Thank you for joining us. Please leave a review, a like, share with your friends. Join us on this journey because my journey can be your journey. And with that, we will say, Peace out. Peace. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at diggingthroughdominoes.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.